Hey everyone, welcome to the Books with Brett podcast. Today we'll be continuing our discussion about the book Atomic Habits by James Clear and how we can apply some of the strategies and principles in this book to our everyday life. In the last podcast episode, I discussed certain concepts like the habit loop and how identity shapes our behavior. In this episode, I want to dig deeper into the four laws of behavior change that we discussed in the last podcast episode. Specifically, I want to talk about the two laws, the first two laws of behavior change, which are making our habits obvious and making our habits attractive. So to start with the first law, the first law is to make it obvious. James Clear begins by recommending what he calls pointing and calling for our habits. This is the process by which we take the habits that we engage in on a daily basis and bring them to our attention rather than just mindlessly engaging in them. Psychologists differentiate between conscious behavior, like things that we do that we're aware of, and non-conscious behavior, like things that we do out of habit without much thought. This means becoming more intentional with your behavior and breaking down your activities so that you are deeply aware of your behavior. One way the book suggests we can do this is by keeping a habit scoreboard. This consists of jotting down your habits throughout the day and then rating them with a plus sign for a positive habit, a negative sign for a negative habit, or an equal sign for a neutral habit. When your habit scoreboard is complete, you can take the time to carefully evaluate your behavior. When doing this, you should be asking yourself for each behavior, does this behavior help me become the person that I want to be? This is a powerful and important question because it reminds us that life is short and our time is precious. We might as well spend it productively to shape ourselves into the person that we want to become. Another tip the author provides is to vocalize our behaviors when in action. If we are going to order a large pizza when we really should have a salad, we can say out loud, I'm about to order a large pizza that will increase my weight and hurt my health. The point here is that when we say what we are doing out loud, the consequences can seem more real to us. Another method that we can use to increase the likelihood that we create and maintain good habits is called the implementation intention. The two most common habit cues are time and location. What the implementation intention does is use these powerful cues to your advantage. By clearly stating to yourself when and where you will do something, you increase the likelihood that you will do the positive habits you are trying to form. You might say, I will do 15 push-ups in my living room tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Or, I will lay out my budget at my dining room table from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock p.m. Or, before bed, I will spend 5 minutes meditating on the sofa in the living room at 9 o'clock p.m. The next tip James Clear provides is called habit stacking. This is when you combine a habit you want to start with an enjoyable hobby that you already have. If one of your habits is enjoying a beer when you get home from work, but you also want to start budgeting your personal finances, you can combine both of these habits. When I get home from work at 5.30, I will enjoy a beer on the patio. After I enjoy a beer on the patio, I will create a budget for the month at 6 o'clock p.m. at the dining room table. Just make sure you're not drunk when you're planning your budget. Habit stacking is useful because it allows us to connect a positive habit that we want to start doing with a rewarding habit that we already do. This tactic draws on the intrinsic motivation we have to perform one habit and combines it with another. You can also flip these and have your beer as a reward after you've done your budget. 
As time goes on, you can add more and more habits to your habit stacking routine so that over time you build up a chain of positive habits that utilize your time well. Our environment plays a crucial role in our behavior. We tend to think that we are in full control of what we do, but the reality is that our environment shapes more of our behavior than we realize. This is why the environment is a big part of the first law of behavior change outlined in the book. The first law of behavior change is to make it obvious. If we want to make a good habit stick, we need to structure our environment in a way that is conducive to making that good behavior a habit. If, for example, you want to eat healthier, you can fill your house and table with healthy food rather than junk food. If you want to create a habit around practicing a musical instrument, leave the instrument out in the open so that you can see it when it's time to practice. When it comes to quitting a bad habit, the reverse is to make it invisible. If the junk food on the kitchen counter is tempting you, get it out of your sight. This leads us to the second law of behavior change, which is make it attractive. It should come as no surprise that the brain plays an important role in our behavior. Understanding the chemical reactions that take place in our brain gives us insight into our behavior and how we can change our behavior for the better. One of the neurotransmitters that plays a strong role in our behavior is dopamine. Our brain releases dopamine when we experience something pleasant, like good food or sex. An interesting fact about dopamine relating to habits is that dopamine isn't only released when we experience the pleasure related to something enjoyable. Dopamine is also released when you are anticipating a reward. When you are about to engage in something you enjoy, there is a large increase in the amount of dopamine that is released, which increases the likelihood that you are going to engage in whatever you are anticipating. After you have done something you enjoy, there is a spike in dopamine immediately after you see the cue next time. Not only does our brain release dopamine for both anticipation and reward, but it turns out that our brains have more circuitry for wanting an experience than for enjoying the experience. This is important to know because it shows us part of the reason why habits are hard to change. Our brain releases lots of dopamine when it is anticipating the reward that comes with the habit, and this is why it is so difficult to resist the temptation to give in to a habit. Desire plays a big part behind our behavior. A habit is obviously more attractive when it is desirable. The author suggests that we use the temptation that our brain burdens us with to our advantage in our habit formation. This includes what he calls temptation bundling, where you combine an action that you want to do with the habit that you want to start. This means that if you enjoy painting when you have some time after work, you can schedule to do crunches before you paint, allowing your hobby to act as a reward. This is similar to habit stacking that I mentioned previously, such as combining your after-work beer and doing your budget. The difference between habit stacking and temptation bundling seems to be that habit stacking is combining a desired habit with one that already exists in your day-to-day -day schedule, whereas temptation bundling is combining your desired habit to one that you enjoy, so that the enjoyable activity works as a temptation, hence its name. Ideally, you will combine habit stacking and temptation bundling. When I get home from work at 5.30 p.m., I will enjoy a beer on the patio. After I enjoy a beer on the patio, I will check all my emails at 6 o'clock p.m. at the dining room table. After I do my budget, I will paint. This makes the habit of checking your emails more attractive. I think that temptation bundling is a very useful way to make our good habits more likely to occur. 
Sometimes I will place a reward at the end of the day so that I feel the incentive to work hard and enjoy that reward after the hard work. In this way, you feel more obligated to work hard because then the reward that you get to enjoy will be earned. The temptation of enjoying the reward is something that makes the less desirable things easier to tackle. Earlier I mentioned how the environment plays a key role in our behavior. This book talks a lot about how important the environment is, but this doesn't just apply to our environmental setting. A more powerful influence on our behavior are the people in our environment. As a social species, humans are greatly influenced by groups, and we tend to conform to those groups much more than we realize. According to Clear, the three groups that we tend to imitate the most are the close, the many, and the powerful. To start with the close, we are all influenced by the people in our lives. Our parents, peers, and authority figures each play a role in shaping who we are and how we see the world. These relationships are so important for us because they give us a sense of belonging in the world and allow us to form close connections with others. Given the power that close connections have on our habits, the book suggests that we join groups that revolve around a similar goal. If you are trying to build a better reading habit, you can join a book club. If you want to get in shape, join a fitness group. If you want to grow more spiritually, you can begin to attend different places of worship and connect with the other members. This connection will give you a unified sense of self. When you join a book club, it isn't just you who is a reader. We are readers. Being a part of a group who holds the same habits that you do strengthens the habit and the likelihood that you will continue it. Next, the many. It is no secret that humans often conform to what others are doing. When we see a majority of people doing something, we tend to feel that it is best to do what they are doing because the majority are doing it then it must be a good idea. One famous experiment by the social psychologist John Ash showed participants two cards. On one card was a line, and on the second card were three lines. The task was that the participants had to say which of the three lines on the second card matched the line on the first card. The twist was that all of the people in the group, except for the one participant, were a confederate, meaning they were in on the experiment but pretended they weren't. The researchers wanted to see what the participants would do if all of the confederates gave an obviously wrong answer. As I already mentioned, on the second card there were three lines, line A, line B, and line C. If you could see the lines, the obvious correct choice would be line C. But if you were in a group and all of the others in your group said line A, would you speak up and go against the majority? Or would you conform to the group and say line A instead of line C so you were an outcast? The researchers found that nearly 75% of the participants agreed with the group even when their answer was wrong. Cases like this demonstrate that we are often more susceptible to the power of the majority than we think. It is important to always remember the appeal of the majority and how this can affect our behavior when we are considering our habits. Finally, how the powerful can influence our habits. We tend to draw inspiration from powerful people. Most people have role models that they seek to emulate and copy in some way. Being aware of how powerful people influence our habits can be helpful. When we take the time to truly contemplate on how much our idols shape our behavior, we can become more picky about who we adore and whether or not their influence over our behavior is helping us to form good and productive habits or whether they are holding us back from reaching our full potential. 
While reading this part of the book, the notion that powerful people can have on our behavior reminded me of the research done by the social psychologist Stanley Milgram. Milgram's research was inspired when he thought about all of the soldiers in Nazi Germany that followed orders to kill innocent Jews in the concentration camps. Milgram was interested in the role that perceived authority played in influencing their behavior. To give a short summary of his famous obedience study, Milgram had people who signed up for an experiment meet with a perceived authority figure dressed in a white coat. This authority figure was the experimenter and was perceived as the one in charge of the experiment. The participants in the study were to fill the role of a teacher and provide instructions to another person, in this case the learner, who would need to provide the correct answer to the question or receive a painful electric shock. But the truth was that the learner was really a confederate and in on the experiment like the participants in Ask's line study. The point of the study was to see if the participants would still administer shocks to the learner even after the shocks became dangerously painful and the learner was asking the participant to please stop. Would the participant obey the experimenter, in this case the authority figure, even when their orders were wrong and dangerous? Many of the participants in the study felt morally conflicted about shocking the learner after they begged the participant to stop and they seemed like they were in a lot of pain. But when the experimenter in the white coat pressured them to continue, a large number of the participants continued to shock the learner. The same way Nazi soldiers were following orders that were handed down to them, the participants were doing the same. This shows how important it is to question authority and to know when it is right to refuse orders and do what we know is right. Sometimes the status of an authority figure makes us conform to what they are telling us to do rather than doing what we should. The second law of behavior change is to make the behavior attractive. Because this increases the likelihood that we will engage in that behavior and turn it into a habit. Clear says another way to make a habit attractive is to change the perspective around it. Instead of saying, I have to floss my teeth, instead say, I get to floss my teeth. This changes the behavior from something you need to do to something you are fortunate to be able to do to improve your gums and dental hygiene. It's a privilege to be able to do this. The reverse of this law, applying it to stop a bad habit, is to make it unattractive. One way that we can use perspective to make a bad habit unattractive is by considering the ways that avoiding that behavior are beneficial to you and becoming the person you want to become. This will help make the bad habit unattractive which will make you less likely to do it. The reason why a craving is so powerful is because cravings seek to fulfill underlying motivations that we all have. We want to feel good and the role of a craving is to help you reach a satisfied state. When a habit makes you feel good, the craving is there to ensure that you will do it again, and again, and again. Realizing why you experience strong cravings will help you overcome them by finding ways to tweak them to your advantage. That concludes today's podcast. I hope you guys were able to get some value out of it and learn some useful tips. In the next podcast episode, I'll be talking about the third and fourth laws of behavior change outlined in this book, Atomic Habits. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.